0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you for giving us your word, that you, the living God, speak to us, and that we can hear your voice as contained in these pages before us this morning. But Lord, we pray that you may grant us great understanding of your words, because we can hear your word but not understand. So Lord, we pray that we may comprehend what you have said, and then may we put it into practice. May we go from here this morning stronger in the faith, as a result of listening to your word and understanding. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I recognise that sometimes my children have great difficulty in understanding me. I will say something to them, and particularly Joshua, he always he will often come back with this one little word, What? What? We actually have a, a saying between Jill and myself in the house. We'll say, What? What? And because he's going around all the time saying what when we actually say something to him. And we realise that sometimes he just doesn't comprehend what we're saying. I've either spoken too quickly or I've used a word that he has no idea what it is. Or he just isn't quite comprehending what I'm trying to get across. He may know all the words but he just needs some time to let it sink in. But instead of waiting he just says what and he wants you to say it again. And that's what we've got a problem with this morning, I think, as we come to Hebrews chapter 6. The word of God is very difficult for us to understand, and some parts of the scriptures are even more difficult than others. Some parts it's quite clear what God is saying. Other parts we really have to dig deep and try and comprehend what it is that God is trying to say to us. And this morning's text is from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through to verse 6. We've been slowly working through the book of Hebrews and we finally come to what has to be the most controversial passage probably in the book of Hebrews, let alone the whole of the scriptures. Uh, There are many Christians who have many disagreements about what this passage says and are quite fervent in their understanding of the text and want to get other people to come on board and comprehend it in the way that they have as well. There are many disagreements over these verses. And I think it's controversial because of what the text appears to say straight off the bat. It seems to be a text that strikes fear into us, and I think rightly so, but it strikes fear into us when we read it for the first time because it seems to say something that we don't like to hear. And I'll read it for you uh, from verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 6. It'd be good if you've got a church Bible there to have it open before you. Page 1187, as we'll be studying verses 4 through to 6 of Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 4 says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance." because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now why is this controversial? Well, the text seems to be saying that Christians can fall away and if they do so, it is impossible for them to actually be brought back to repentance. That once they fall away, that is it. There is no more hope for such people. They've been a Christian, they've decided, no, I'm not going to be a Christian any longer and if they do that, then there is no possibility of them actually returning. And we've got to ask ourselves this morning as we consider that, is that actually what the text is saying? Is that a right interpretation of the text? And so I've got a number of options for you this morning as to what people suggest is the meaning of this text, and you can see them on the back of the church bulletin there. There are four options that are commonly held by Christians about what this text is saying. And the first option is, of course, that the text is saying what we think on the first reading it is to be saying. That is, option number one, as printed in your sheets, it is impossible for Christians to repent if they fall away. That it's simply impossible for Christians to repent if they fall away. But if we consider that, we then have to put that in light of other passages in Scripture that speak about the perseverance of the saints. That Christians, once they are saved, remain saved for the rest of their lives. Because that is what the Scriptures say in other parts of the Bible. Consider John 10.27. John 10.27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My sheep, Christians, know my voice, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then he goes on, not just that. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ's hand. And Christ says no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand. But not only that, if you are a Christian, you are in the Father's hand. And Jesus says the Father is greater than all. And no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand either. And so we've got to consider that as we look at this passage and we say, here are people who are Christians and then they fall away. But John, Jesus says in John's Gospel that You can't actually be snatched out of God's hand. If you're in God's hand, you're in God's hand for the rest of eternity. And what about Romans 8.35 where the Apostle Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's just listed a whole bunch of reasons that could actually separate you from being a Christian anymore, like, uh, what was it? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. But he says, no, we can't be separated from them because we're more than conquerors of all those kinds of things. And then he says in verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Apostle Paul, strong language, that we cannot be separated from the love of God, which means that if we're a Christian, we stay a Christian, nothing can come and assault us and make us leave the Christian faith. We can't fall away, is what those passages are saying. But then we come to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, 5 and 6, and we go... Well, here's another train of thought. Have we got a contradiction here? And I would suggest that the scripture does not contradict itself. If we think that two passages in scripture are actually contradictory, then we have to try and work out what are they actually saying and have we misunderstood one of those passages? And is it not that the scripture is making a contradiction, but we are forcing a contradiction to be made between scriptures? And so we're the problem, not the Scripture. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. I want us to look at, is there another option to understand Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, 5 and 6 and that there is another understanding that then doesn't mean we put it in contradiction with John and Paul and many other parts of Scriptures that talk about the eternal salvation of those who are saved. So what is another option? Well, option number two is... It is difficult for Christians to repent if they fall away. It is difficult for Christians to repent if they fall away. Some people suggest that the word impossible, as you've got there in verse 4, where it says it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, etc. It is impossible doesn't actually mean impossible. It just means difficult. Which means you can be a Christian, you can backslide for a while, and it's difficult for you to come back, but you can come back. So it's not a case that you're falling away for good, that you've fallen out of the Father's hand, and can no longer be a Christian. <coughs> Excuse me. And so they refer to passages like Mark ten twenty-seven, where it says, uh, where Jesus says about the rich man entering the kingdom of God, he says, with, Jesus says, with man this is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So it's impossible for man to do it, but with God it is possible. And so impossible here doesn't actually mean impossible, it just means difficult. But it's interesting that the word impossible, the Greek word impossible, is used in Hebrews chapter 6 not just once, but twice. It's actually used again down in verse 18. Look with me, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18. It says, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. The word impossible is used in verse 18. And what is it in reference to? God lying. Now, would you say that the author understands the word impossible to just simply be difficult, And that when he says there in verse 18, impossible, he actually means difficult. So he says, it is difficult for God to lie. We're not saying that God can't lie. He can, but it's difficult for him to do so. That flies in the face of the rest of Scripture. Scripture tells us quite clearly that it is impossible for God to lie. He is light and in him there is no darkness. And so when the author uses the word impossible, he means impossible. Within a few verses... Down the track, he means impossible. So why would we say that he doesn't mean impossible here? He quite clearly does. So that option can't be the case. It can't just simply be difficult for Christians to come back. Option number three. What's another option? It is impossible for Christians to repent if they fall away, which they won't. So this understanding of the text focuses on the little word if in verse 6. We read verses four and uh, five and six again. It says, "It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace." <coughs> Some people focus on that word "if" and they say, "This is all hypothetical. It's a strong warning given to us, but it doesn't actually mean that it can happen. It's an if, the if is there, it's all hypothetical, and just because something is hypothetical doesn't actually mean it is the case. And so people say, oh, it's going to be okay. There's a strong warning that we should hear, but we shouldn't worry too much about it because in the grand scheme of things, no one can pluck us out of the father's hand or the son's hand and we're going to be okay. But... We've got to be careful with this because the word if is not actually in the Greek. It is a possible translation of this text but it's not necessarily the translation that has to be there because the word isn't there. It's actually a participle and the NIV, the King James and the RSV have it translated as if. They make it a conditional but the ESV, the NASB have it as then they fall away not if they fall away, then they fall away and the Holman has, and who have fallen away. And they're all legitimate translations. So the if translation is not necessarily the right translation. And then when you think about it, what's the point of a warning if it can't actually take place? We just took the family to Genolan Caves. I was on annual leave and we went to Genolan Caves and we took the kids there and they ran through these caves, but some parts of the caves you really shouldn't run. And you're going down these steep steps, holding onto these ropes, and all the while I'm saying to Josh, be careful, don't fall, watch out, you can fall. Now what's the point of saying that if I know he can't? Let's say he's harnessed onto something, he's tied down quite firmly, and then I'm saying to him, watch out, don't fall. He's tied down, he can't move at all. And I'm saying to him, don't fall. What's the point of a warning if it's not actually possible? If this is all just hypothetical and we know that you can't actually fall away, then this is a waste of the preservation of this text for thousands of years for us. Like, what's the point of including this? If it's something there to warn us, but it's not actually going to happen to us. And we all know it's not going to happen. The author knows it's not going to happen. We as readers know it's not going to happen. So let's just move on. It's useless warning if we focus on the if. And so I think we have to reject that option as well. So what is the right understanding of this text? What is my preferred understanding of the text, I should say? But I think it is the right interpretation. And many godly interpreters through history have followed this line of thought. And that is what I propose as option number four to you this morning. I hope you've been enjoying this sermon. It is much more complex than usually my sermons are, I guess, but that is because of the nature of the text. As I said before, this is one of the most difficult parts of scripture and cause many people much uh, anxiety in history. And I think it is because they don't understand it rightly and they don't understand it as what I have as option number four. Option number four is, it is impossible for non-Christians to repent if they fall away. It is impossible for non-Christians to repent if they fall away. I think this is the... Better understanding, because it's, show, it's that the, not, the, the people put in this category are actually non-Christians. We jump to the conclusion that these are Christians, but that's not necessarily the case, that they are Christians. Why would I say that? Surely these descriptors here show that they are Christians. After all, what does it say about these people? It says it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. That sounds like a Christian. All those things could be said of Christians. And so we automatically jump to the fact that this is talking about Christians. But these descriptors could actually be said to be non-Christians as well. And I'm not going to go into great detail about those this week. I'm actually going to do that next week. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to break up this discussion over a number of different weeks. And so if you want to find out why I think those descriptions there are about non-Christians and how non-Christians can be described in that way, then you're just going to have to come back next week or listen to the podcast next week and find out why I think that to be the case. But I want to show you this week, I want to give you an overall picture of the passage and show you why I think it's talking about non-Christians because of the context that comes in later verses. Why it's talking about non-Christians because of the context in later verses. We've always got to pay attention to context whenever we read a verse. We can't just take a verse and rip it out of context and say it's saying this. And that's why I've taken great time this morning to show you that John 10 and Romans 8, which are part of the Bible as well, And part of the context of these verses, we have to hold them up in light of one another. But I want to show you now in a couple of verses down that it pushes us in the understanding that these people aren't Christians. Now, why would I say that? Well, look with me down to verse 9. The first thing I want to point out to you, after speaking about people in verses 4 to 6, the author then speaks about another group of people in verse 9. And these people are clearly Christians. What does it say in verse 9? It says, Even though we speak like this, dear friends, the readers of the letter, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. These are people that persevere to the end. And what do they have? They have things that accompany salvation. What's Why why does he say things there? Because he's talked about other things, previous verses. And now he's saying, now we've got another group of people, you the readers, and you have other things. And what are those things? Things that accompany salvation, which is implying that the things that came previously don't necessarily accompany salvation, which means that those people are not necessarily saved. Salvation being the noun for saved. They don't have salvation. And then there's an illustration given to us between those verses, between verse 6 and verse 9, that also show us that there are two groups of people that the author has in mind, not one group of Christians. What does verse 7 and 8 say? It says, Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Verses 7 and 8 show us that there are two lands that the author has in mind. One that produces fruit that receives the blessing of God and another type of land that only produces thorns and thistles and is ultimately cursed, in danger of being cursed, and then thrown into the fire. What do we have there? We have non-Christians and Christians, people who produce thorns and thistles and are ultimately burnt. And then we have Christians who receive the blessing of God. And so we have here that a clear presentation of the fact that the author is presenting two groups of people in his mind. And so firstly, in verses 4, 5 and 6, he's talking about non-Christians who make it impossible for themselves to return to the things of Christianity if they leave those wonderful Christian blessings that they've been experiencing And so we can recognise that this is the case, that many non-Christians are indeed very privileged. They can be enlightened. They can taste the heavenly gift. They can share in the Holy Spirit. They can taste goodness of the word of God and powers of the coming age. And although these things do sound like Christian attributes, they could also be said of non-Christians. And we just simply must understand that non-Christians can receive great privileges, but that doesn't make them Christians. Yesterday, it was birthday party for my son as we've already wished him a happy birthday today at this uh, church uh, I'm sure you're all aware of that and we had a big birthday party he had his friends over from preschool they came over and what did they do they had a lot of fun as my wife had organized all these things I don't know where she found the time to do it all and what did they also do they ate my food they came over and they ate lots of food that I had purchased for them Now, they're all receiving blessing as they're coming into my house. They're receiving the blessing of my food. Chips, lollies, everything. Cake, jelly, all coming in and eating and being blessed by me. But does that mean that every child there is my son or daughter? No. They're all experiencing privileges in my house, but that doesn't necessarily make them part of my family. Some of them are part of my family, but not all of them are. And the Bible tells us again and again that God does bless non-Christians. He sends His rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's not as though a farmer, you go out into, we did travel out to also, um, my holidays out to Dubbo, and there's lots and lots of empty fields and with, or, or full of sheep, it seemed to be sheep, sheep, sheep. It's not as though you can tell the Christian farms from the non-Christian farms because you can see that rain must fall on that farm and so that must be a Christian and rain must not fall on that farm so because there's no grass there and so that must be a non-Christian farm. No, God sends his blessing on everyone. Many of the blessings that we experience in this world, everybody experiences. And just because we all experience God's blessings doesn't make us all Christians. And even though we have described here some really good things which could be said of Christians, doesn't necessarily mean that these people are Christians. And this interpretation that these people aren't Christians fits with the context of the book. The book of Hebrews is written to people who are considering leaving Christianity. That they are Israelites who have converted they've they've converted to Christianity and they're considering leaving Christianity, considering going back to what they had before. And the author is wanting to warn them that you should not be like your forefathers. Again and again, he's brought up the forefathers wandering around in the desert and they experienced much blessing from God in the desert. But they did not go in. They were rebellious people and showed that they did not have faith Go back to verses uh, chapter 3 and 4 and study that this afternoon. And you can see again and again, the author is trying to tell the people, don't be like your fathers. They experienced the blessings of God in the desert, but they did not combine those blessings with faith. And he's wanting to warn the readers here that you should be very careful that just because you experience God's blessings and you look like a Christian, doesn't mean that you actually are and you're actually putting yourself in great danger because if you leave the things of Christianity and try to come back it'll actually be harder for you and it may even be impossible for you to come back and so we have to recognize that this passage is a difficult passage not because of the meaning of it but because we don't really like what it says ultimately that's the problem. Because it makes us fear that we aren't actually Christians, that we may be just someone who has been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, but we aren't actually saved. And it scares us to consider that. It's like with my son, when I tell him things and he says, what? Sometimes it's not because he doesn't understand, it's because he doesn't like what I've told him to do. I've given him a command and he says, what? What? I say, No, I want you to go clean your room. And he goes, What? He knows what I'm saying. But he just keeps saying, What? Because he doesn't like what I say. And that's what we can do with this passage. We don't like what it says. It makes us doubt our faith and that we are saved. Because we say, This could be me. And I don't have the things that accompany salvation, then, and then I'm not saved. And so this book is very good for us, this this passage is very good for us, to make us reflect on where do we stand with God. Have we got the veneer of a Christian? Have we got this appearance of a Christian? And we aren't actually saved. That could be the case for any of us sitting here this morning. We come regularly to church, we read our Bible, we pray, we look like a Christian. But are we actually a Christian? And so we have to consider that and examine ourselves, do we have true faith in God? And do we have the things that do accompany salvation, as is told to us in verses 10 and following in this passage, which I'm not going to go into today because I don't have enough time. But in subsequent weeks, I will look at those things. But I wanted you to get a good overview of the passage today, that this is what the passage is saying, is that there are people who look like Christians, but they're actually not. And that could be you. But we've also got to be careful that we don't unbalance this scripture with the rest of scripture because some people have very sensitive souls and they're very sensitive about such passages and they are actually Christians but they focus on these passages and always wondering whether they are a Christian or not and they go into great perplexity about this issue. We've got to remember passages like John 10 and Romans 8. We should listen to this passage, I think, initially and say, am I a Christian? search our hearts and say, have I really repented of my sins and trusted in Jesus Christ? Or do I simply look like a Christian? And after we've done that, and if we can say, yes, I have trusted in Jesus Christ, then we should cling to those other passages and take assurance from them that once we're in the Father's hand, once we're in Jesus' hand, no one can snatch us out and nothing can separate us from the love of God. This passage is a good passage to warn us. We've also got to have other passages in mind as well that we can say, as this, this author is very careful here, notice how he does verse 9, I can't help myself, but I'll preach on it later, but verse 9 he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, he wants to be careful, he's, he's applied something really strong to them and now he's trying to be, his, his pastoral heart's coming out, him and going, dear friends, I'm confident that there's better things in your case. And so we've got to take this passage in mind with the rest of Scripture, that we can have great confidence in our perseverance. We should heed the warnings, but persevere. So have you examined yourself? Have you examined yourself to see whether you simply look like a Christian but are not a Christian? Do you heed this warning passage? And if you have, you've examined yourself and found yourself to be a faithful believer in Jesus Christ, you then take comfort in the other passages that speak about the fact that you can never fall away, that God will always look after you, always preserve you, so you will persevere to the end. Let's speak with our God now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word does indeed warn us and spur us to examine ourselves so that we can see whether we do have salvation. Lord, we pray that we may heed the warning of this passage. Examine ourselves. And Lord, we pray that if we find ourselves wanting, that we may indeed flee to Christ, trust in him, turn from our wicked ways and find forgiveness. Lord, we do also pray that we may, if we examine ourselves and find ourselves to be believers in Jesus Christ, we pray that we may cling to those parts of scripture that are a great comfort to us, that we can never fall away. That Once saved, we are always saved because your hand surrounds us and protects us from all that could injure us and take away our salvation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.